uh, John 4, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, or Sukkar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is uh, noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. <clears throat> water. <laughs> Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water or flowing water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. You've had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worship worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came. And they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one, no one said, what do you seek, or uh, why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah, the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say, or do you not say, there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, For we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So, Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you see, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This, again, is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into into the Galilee. Into Galilee. All right, guys, let's pray. And we'll jump into that first story, the woman at the well story there. Um, Father, it truly is you that we need. It is not not a hyped-up, emotional religious experience. Rather, what we find in your word is that you reveal to us that when we hear you and we believe what you've said, that we find solid ground on which to plant our feet, to construct um, our lives as we navigate this world that is crumbling, that is uh, fraught with uh, wind and waves so that we need not be tempest-tossed. Father, 
My Father, settle us in the truth of your word, that we would be lights shining in the midst of darkness. You promise to bring us home. And it is in your promise that we rest and that we find hope, though the world may crumble around us. Your word endures forever, Lord, and we praise you for it. Let us be men and women of your word, I ask. And therefore, men and women of you, God, seeing how it is through your word that you revealed yourself to us. Let us have this confidence that this is eternal life to know you and your Son whom you have sent. (coughs) Father, be glorified in us, I pray. Help us, heal us, Lord. Work in our families and our friends. Work in our marriages and with our children, Lord. Build your kingdom in us and through us, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, guys, back up with me to um, verse 1 of chapter 4 here, of John 4. We'll look at the story of the woman at the well. Uh, I like this story. It uh, reminds me of one of the one of our, like uh, we were talking about a little bit earlier this morning, one of our misnomers related to the word worship, the way we use the word worship, um, and what that means and what that looks like. I think uh, really the best definition um, is uh, the one I think that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12, when he says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, uh, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. This is your reasonable act of service. You could also say this is your reasonable act of worship. Right? That's what it means to, to worship. It's, it's an all the time, every day, my life is yours. I belong to you. It's a, a bowing down to someone else. That's what it means to worship. Now, we use the word like this, though. We say we're going to worship now, aren't we? (laughs) What do we mean? We mean we're going to sing a song, right? (laughs) That's not worship necessarily, right? Here's what I want you to understand. You can sing Christian songs and not have a heart and attitude that is one of worship, right? We can sing songs and not be worshiping. We can pray and not be worshiping, (laughs) We can do all manner of good service and good deeds and not be worshiping, right? Those things are not necessarily combined, though they can be, right? And and our our desire is that they would be, right? That, That all of those acts, all of those things that we might do would be the overflow of the heart submitted to the living one, to the ever present, omnipresent omnipotent one. All of those things can then be, therefore, be an overflow. Every act in the life of the Christian can be one of worship, whether it's taking out the trash, washing the dishes, wiping babies' butts, enjoying our marriage. Every act can be one of worship. Seeing as worship is about Submitting our hearts to another, to the living King, right? 
Therefore, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, uh, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. There's a parenthetical statement between there. That's verse 2. But but I wanted to make sure we got the idea. When Jesus heard that the, um, when the Lord knew, rather, that the Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, then he left Judea, right? That's what he's saying here. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. I've mentioned to you before that the typical route for most Jews, when they're going from the southern part of Israel, which is Judea, to the northern part of Israel, which is Galilee, there's a middle region there called Samaria. Uh, that is uh, no man's land for uh, good Jews, if we can use the that sort of phraseology, right? If you want to be a good Jew, you don't go through Samaria. You go around Samaria to get to the Galilee, right? to the northern part uh, of Israel. Uh, the middle part there um, represented something. Uh, it was a mixture of both Jews and Assyrians, uh, as well as others. When the northern kingdom, let me give you a little bit of history here so that you can understand why there was this animosity between Jews and Samaritans. After King David died, uh, Solomon became king, his son Solomon. Now, after Solomon died, right, and God blessed Solomon's kingdom so much that they got to a place, there were so many riches, and it was just this incredible, peaceful kingdom where they didn't have all these battles to fight because David had already fought most of the battles. And um, Solomon asked for wisdom when God said, what do you want? You know, I'll give you anything. Solomon said, I, I want wisdom. And God was so honored. Uh, God honored that that decision, rather, that um he asked for wisdom rather than riches and rather than other things for himself. He asked for wisdom to make right judgments for the people of God, right? And God uh, then blessed him with all of these other things, right? All this other um, stuff. Also, it also became a curse to him. Uh, if you read through the Proverbs and you read through um, the book of Ecclesiastes, um, Solomon and his wisdom realized he had everything you could possibly imagine. And then he just summarized all of it by saying, all that really matters is to hear God's voice and keep his commands because everything else is vanity of vanities, soap bubbles. It just, you try and grab it and it just pops. Vanity of vanities. He said about everything under the sun, which is his way in the book of Ecclesiastes of saying everything that we can experience here on the earth, right? Cause we're under the sun here, right? So, um, God had, had given all of that to Solomon. But after Solomon died, there was peace during his, his reign. After Solomon died, there was a division, a split in the kingdom, right? Uh, some people began to um, serve um, one son. Another began to serve another son. And so the kingdom of Israel was split into two separate kingdoms. There was Judah and Benjamin, which became the kingdom of Judah in the south. And then there was in the north, uh, the kingdom of Israel, which was the rest of the tribes, Okay. And Israel, because they did not have access to Jerusalem, the kingdom of Israel, right, would have been above um, Judea or Judah. That area of Judea in Judea in Judah is where Jerusalem was. Guess what was in Jerusalem? The temple, which is where what? Where you worshipped and met God, right? That's where God prescribed his worship to, to take place when we were doing actual uh, acts of service, right? So what did they do in the northern kingdom? In Israel, they instituted a 
false worship, right? They set up worship at Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was a mountain when the nation of Israel was first coming into the land of Canaan, into the land of Israel. Uh, some of the tribes were up on Mount Gerizim, and some of them were up on Mount Ebal, I believe. And Mount Gerizim was the one where they pronounced blessings, and Mount Ebal was the one where they pronounced cursings. If you keep the law, there's blessing. If you don't keep the law, there's cursing. And they pronounced all of these things. So in the northern kingdom, what they did was they set up sort of an alternate religious system where they would go to that mountain, Mount Gerizim, and they would worship there at a, with a false priesthood. And, and there was all sorts of other things that over time be, began, began to be linked to all of this stuff. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel was carried into captivity by the Assyrian armies before the southern kingdom of Judah was eventually also carried away into captivity by Babylon. Okay, the Assyrians, when they took the northern kingdom of Israel away, they carried a bunch of people away in, in slavery. What they did was they took Assyrians from all sorts of different nations and they put them down in, guess where? In where the northern kingdom of Israel was, which is what comes to be known as Samaria. Okay, And those Assyrians who came down, married with and intermingled with the Jews who may have remained there in the area, so the Jews from Judah, from Judea, in the southern part, uh, looked at the, that those people and said, well, you guys are just like half-breeds. There's a lot of idol worship involved in all of this stuff. They weren't what, what you might think of as purebred Jews, right? Because they had intermarried with all of these other nations who had been brought down by the Assyrians uh, into that northern area. So this is what the relationship is between Jews and Samaritans. And this was hundreds of years before this time that that stuff occurred. Okay, Several hundred years. So now you've got hundreds of years of history, more history than the United States has as a country. There's more of that time that has passed than has passed from the beginning of our country to now from the time that that happened until now. So there's all this animosity between Samaritans and between Jews that has been developed and cultivated over time. Okay. So, uh, in fact, um, the uh, Pharisees, if they had to go through Samaria, would uh, shake the dust off of their feet, something that Jesus used as an illustration to them, to the Jews themselves later on. But the um, Pharisees would do that if they had to go through the land of, uh, of Samaria in order to sort of say, you know, your dust needs to stay here. We don't want it in Israel, <laughs> right? Uh, either whether it was the southern part, which is Judea, or the northern part, which is Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. In the middle of it is that area of Samaria there, okay? So, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, the parenthetical statement points out this, that Jesus didn't actually baptize anybody, which is one of those things that for me, the groups of people that try and teach that the, the only way for you to really be saved is for you to believe and be baptized. I'm like, well, Jesus didn't baptize anybody. <laughs> well, he had his followers do it. Well, okay. But like if it was so important that that's how you had to be saved, why wouldn't he have done it? <laughs> you know? Seems like a weird, weird thing, right? To, to me. Um, but uh, the main reason why I bring it up is because the Bible doesn't teach us that, right? The thing that we must do is believe in our heart. Confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. We will be saved. That's the promise that's given to us. Just trust him. Trust him. He's the one who rescues you. There's nothing you can do. That's why it's good news. It's only bad news if I'm trying to do a bunch of stuff to make myself acceptable to God. 
God, please accept me because I read my Bible. God, please accept me because I go to church or accept me because I give money or accept me because of whatever the list of things are that we've developed over time to um, produce religious life. They're all nothing. The prophet Isaiah said, all of our righteousnesses are like menstrual rags. It's gross, right? Right. It's supposed to be gross. It's the point. Doesn't make you better. Doesn't make you acceptable. But Jesus does. <laughs> That's the good news. He saves sinners. So if you're sitting and one day realize, I am a sinner, you're just in the perfect place to be rescued. Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's the great news. If he, also related to that, if he rescued me, came to me and gave me his spirit, um, in what, what I might think of as the worst place that I could be in, in my sin, uh, you've got to know that you're still accepted now. It's not like you've done something since then that he's like, oh, now nah, I'm done with you now. Sorry, I didn't expect you to do that years later. <laughs> right? Isn't that a foolish thing to think? I mean, we'd never say it that way, would we? But sometimes we can feel that way. So um, John, as he's writing, adds this parenthetical statement. Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. I mentioned to you before that when Paul writes to the Corinthian church about how they were glorifying one teacher over another teacher, and they were like, oh, you got to hear, I'm of a... Paul and I'm of Apollos, and they were all proud about the people that they were linking themselves to, their their quote unquote pastor or whatever. Um, Paul's like, you guys, we are nothing. We're, we're just servants through whom you believed. But one person plants and another person waters. It's always God who produces life. It's always God who who gives the increase, right? So we're we're nothing. Those of us who serve in this way, we're nothing. Paul said. Um. In that passage there, in, in his letters to the church at Corinth, Paul also makes it clear that he didn't baptize, he didn't go out purposely baptizing people. He said, I baptized a few of you, I guess. Uh, he's kind of flipping about it. He's like, he's like, I suppose I baptized some of you guys, but like not very many because Jesus sent me to preach the gospel, not to baptize. And Paul draws a dichotomy. He draws a line between those things. Baptism, water baptism, is important and a wonderful step of obedience to Jesus. And we say, I'm being united together with Jesus. It's an incredible picture of what God has done in our lives already as we've trusted him. And as he's he's rescued us and brought us from death to life. And baptism reminds us of that. Baptism is one of those two things that I mentioned to you before. Those two things where uh, the church continues to practice, where we announce the gospel message, which is what? Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and raised from the dead. And we have these two things where we take the bread and the wine and we eat and drink to remind us of what? Jesus' broken body and shed blood, his death on the cross and his burial. And then we have water baptism that reminds us both of his burial and of his resurrection, right? And not just of his, but of ours, because he's called the first fruits. The first fruit is the the first part of the harvest that is uh, indicative of the rest of the coming harvest. 
right? So if he's the first fruit, it's a reminder that you and I who've trusted him are going to be raised with him. Okay, that's the promise that we hold to. Um, he, as soon as Jesus knew this, knew that the Pharisees heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. What we're going to see as we continue through John's gospel is this, this phrase that John begins with Jesus' response to Mary at the wedding of Cana when Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. He's like, what, is your, what does this request have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, right? We'll see that phrase used several times through the gospel of John until the time of the crucifixion. Jesus is constantly saying, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, until he's actually going to be crucified. And then we don't see that anymore. Um, because we're going to see that the religious leaders are trying to capture him over and over and over and over again. They're trying to take him over and over and over again. Okay, So now when he hears that they know that he's baptizing, when he knows rather that they have heard that he is baptizing um, more disciples than John, now what does he do? He leaves Judea, which is the central part of Jewish spiritual life, where the where Jerusalem is and all of that. He leaves that again and goes back to Galilee, which is where his home base is of ministry, where Capernaum is and uh, where Nazareth is, where he was raised, that, that area. Okay. Uh, so he left Judea and, again and departed again to Galilee. But verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. I love that that's written there. John knew, as John was writing this years later, after after the fact, John's like, he needed to go through Samaria because he's recalling the story he's about to write about this woman at the well here. So he came to a city of Samaria, verse 5, which is called Sukkar. Um, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, uh, Joseph. So uh, for further reference, you can look that up in uh, the book of Genesis, the story there of Jacob and the plot of ground that he had uh, that would eventually be uh, given to Joseph. So uh, Jacob's well was there, verse 6. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, as I mentioned when we read through it before. The sixth hour is lunchtime, is noon, okay, the middle of the day. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, I want to stop really quickly. There, there's a lot of things that have been said about this passage. A lot of things we've tried to say to understand what's happening here. Um, and, and I want to caution you. I try to do this a lot, I suppose. I want to caution you that there's a lot of stuff that's been said about this situation that isn't actually in the text. Um, like things like, well, why was she coming at noon? That's not the time women go to draw water. And like, and that means that she was going separately from all the other women. And why was she going separately from all the other women? Because of the reputation that she had. And, and then that's exposed later. And like, so, so what I'm trying to say to you is that like, there's a lot of stuff that's said that actually isn't anywhere in the Bible, right? Um, it's stuff that people have, have tried to say to make sense of some of the stories in, in a particular way. Sometimes I'm afraid that we add some of that stuff because we're, <sighs> I think that we're trying to be more clever maybe than we need to be, but I don't know. Some of that stuff just isn't here. What the text does say is this. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. They're in Samaria now. She comes to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Disciples sent, uh, uh, went, as the text says, to get some food. They went, to, I don't know, stop by McDonald's or something to get some Happy Meals. 
and uh, bring them out because they were hungry. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, was Chick-fil-A around back then? Maybe they were going for Chick-fil-A. Um, as long as it wasn't Sunday, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, they left to go buy some food. So Jesus is there. The woman comes. Jesus says, give me a drink. I love that John like makes a point of saying that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Do you hear that? He needed to go through Samaria. But the, but the whole thing, the main thing that happens here is this interaction, not just with this woman. It begins with this woman, but it begins with then, it then spreads to the entire city of Samaria. But you've got to understand that later on, as we read, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And now there's this group of Jews in Samaria. This is um, confronting a lot of biases, a lot of prejudice, uh, both for the Jews and the Samaritans. So Jesus asked her for a drink. The woman, verse 9, the woman, then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Do you get that? Like she's surprised. She's shocked by this whole ordeal that this Jewish man is asking her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. Um, and she summarizes it with this cultural understanding. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That is how deeply ingrained this, essentially this racism was at the time between Jews and Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, The gift of God. This is also going to be a theme that we see throughout John's gospel. Jesus saying, guys, I'm going to leave, but I won't leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will send another helper like me. Him you will receive. And he will be with you. The gift of God is the Spirit of God with you, God with us. Not just true of Jesus, Emmanuel. That's what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. But the gift of God's Holy Spirit. In fact, it was this gift, this promise, when we get to the book of Acts, what we're going to see is that whenever a new group of people is accepted into the church, the way that the Jews knew they were accepted was because of the gift of the Holy Spirit being given to them. That's the way the Jewish Christians realized, wait a minute, if God accepts those people, <laughs> if God gave them the same gift he gave us, that's a phrase that they use, if God gave them the same gift he gave us, what was that gift? The Holy Spirit given to them in Acts chapter 2, so that they knew God was with them always, even to the end of the age. God is with you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This building, this is not the temple of the Holy Spirit. The churches down the street, those aren't the temples of God's Spirit. If they rebuild a temple in Jerusalem someday, that is not the temple of God's Spirit. You, you who follow Jesus, you have been given the gift of God's Spirit. You are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. The wonderful thing about this is that that means that wherever you go, he goes in that sense, right? Obviously, he's always everywhere. We're talking about the, the awareness, 
the reality of God's presence with us in the world, the very kingdom of God working through you. The kingdom of God? Yeah, as Paul said, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what you have. You have the kingdom of God at work in you in a way the world doesn't know. <clears throat> and therefore we become light in the midst of darkness. A world clinging to whatever ideas it can to try to make sense of why everything is falling apart. <laughs> and what happens? Oh, I know that we've embraced such nihilism now. It's so easy for people who don't believe to say, oh, nothing happens and it just doesn't matter. I saw a conversation recently. It was an interview between Larry King and Stan Lee. And Stan Lee Stanley, one of the creators of most of the many of the Marvel comic book characters, was saying that uh, that he didn't really believe in God. He didn't believe in an afterlife, and uh, and then both he and Larry King just sat there and kind of dumbfoundedly look at, looked at each other and said, "Well, I mean, neither do I." But like, what I can't wrap my head around is ceasing to exist forever, annihilation, nothing forever. I just can't wrap my head around it, like. Isn't it shocking that you, a finite being, can't wrap your head around the idea of being finite? Isn't that such a weird thing? <laughs> because, because we were made for something different. <laughs> and both of them just looked at each other with these dumbfounded looks. Like, I just can't. I mean, there's nothing. Like, guys, come on. <laughs> Um, the gift of God, the way that the early church recognized that a new group was being brought into and embraced as part of God's kingdom was through the gift of God, whether it was the, through the Samaritans first, and then later on, whether it was through uh, those who were Gentiles. Gentile is a word that means the nations. It means anybody not Jewish. The way they recognized it was God poured his spirit on them the same way that God did in Acts chapter 2 to the Jewish believers. And so they were like, every time they were like, oh, so I guess God's accepted them. <laughs> so we, we should accept them too. <laughs> That's what their conclusion uh, eventually came to. Uh, there was lots of uh, prejudice and, and racist ideas for them to overcome. Uh, in fact, later on, when the Apostle Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, one of the reasons why the crowd begins a great uproar again, not just because he, they thought or lied about the idea that he brought non-Jews into the temple compound. That was the first reason why they were arresting him. But when Paul started to plead his case before the crowds of people there, when he started to try to address them, um, the moment he got to the point where he said that Jesus told him to go announce the kingdom to the Gentiles— Everybody lost their mind. <laughs> they were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're good Jews. The kingdom isn't for the Gentiles. <laughs> they lost their brains. And they had to then, like, uh, the soldiers then had to protect Paul and take him out of the temple compound at the time very quickly in order to protect him. And uh, he ended up being held and, and, and pleading. He, and because he was a Roman citizen, he wanted to plead his case before Caesar. So he got a free trip to, to Rome. It wasn't a fun trip, but it was free. <laughs> right? I mean, he was he was in chains uh, most of it. But, uh, anyways, uh, very interesting uh, things for me. So, <clears throat> to me, if you knew the gift of God, 
And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Don't misunderstand the idea of living water. It means water that's flowing. Okay. And, and the reason why I say that is that I grew up hearing this phrase living water a lot and nobody ever explained to me that it just means like like flowing water. And so I was like, does that mean like some kind of water that is like life and water or whatever? And like, it just, it means water that's, that's flowing, right? If water doesn't flow, you know what happens to it? It kills everything in it. That's what the Dead Sea is. It's, it's a um, water flows down the Jordan River and then ends at the Dead Sea. But there's no outlet. There's no rivers where water goes out of the Dead Sea. And so everything in the Dead Sea is dead. <laughs> That's why it's called the Dead Sea. <laughs> okay. And everything around the sea is dead. Um, so the idea of living water is the idea of waters that are flowing or moving. That's life-giving water. Right. If you want to bathe yourself, uh, you should do it under flowing water. Right. Like I tell my kids, like if you sit in the bathtub and you just get dirty water on you, like dirty butt water on you, it's what I call it to my kids. <laughs> and then like you take that water and you bathe yourself with it, like you're not clean. You just bathe yourself with dirty butt water. <laughs> like you need flowing water to like clean yourself off with. You know. <laughs> like, uh, anyways. <laughs> uh. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a bath. Just make sure you rinse yourself with clean water. I'm just saying. <laughs> clean yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, uh, it's also one of the reasons why in the law, in, in Moses, you'll find uh, the related to the rituals of purification, you'll find that a lot of them are related to pouring water over things, taking clean water and pouring it over something or rinsing things off with flowing water, with pouring water. That's living water. That's the idea there. Okay. And so that's what's being spoken of here. This is Jesus saying, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Asked whom? Him, Jesus. Asked me and I would give you living, flowing, life-giving water. The woman said to him, clearly, this goes over her head, like several of the things we talked about last week uh, to the people Jesus addressed then. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? I want you to stop for a second and understand what wells were like in ancient times. When you think of a well, what do you picture in your mind? You know what I picture? For years, what I pictured? I pictured a little stone circle, right? Little block circle, little A-frame, wooden deal over it with a little bucket. You drop down, little crank thing to crank the bucket up with water. No. No, sir. Those were not wells in ancient times. Uh, that was something that was developed um, later in history. It's a little bit um, anachronistic. It's out of time. You know what a well was? It was a great big hole with stairs carved into the sides all the way around as you march down into the well. You walk down into the well. You go down carrying whatever pitcher or pot or bucket or thing, and you scoop water up by the time you get to wherever the fresh water is down on the bottom. That's where they've dug the well to to wherever the aquifer is. If you guys are familiar with the idea of aquifers and underground water sources. You carry your stuff down, you put it on your shoulder, you put it on your head, you use whatever you can, and then you march yourself back up those stairs all the way around till you get to the top. Okay? That's what ancient wells were like. <laughs> so, her response, 
to Jesus. You have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Like, what do you, you don't have anything to carry water in. Because she said, or remember Jesus said to her, you would have asked me and I would give you flowing waters. I'd give you living water. And she's like, what are you, what are you on about, mister? (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) Where then do you get that living water? She asked. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Now she's like, wait a minute. If you're not talking about getting water out of this well, are you saying you're better than Jacob who gave us the well? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. I just want you to understand that that is true about everything that you see with your eyes that you try to satisfy your life with. If you try to make the things that you see right now, the things that satisfy you, you're made for more. You're made for something different. You were made for God. So then, if you try to make drink, or if you try to make sex, or if you try to make marriage, or a spouse, or children, if you try to make your job, if you try to make toys, and trinkets, and video games, and movies, and television shows, if you try to make any of those things the things that satisfy you, whoever drinks of that water will thirst again. You're always going to be thirsting for more. None of those things can satisfy you because you weren't made for those things. None of them. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. I find myself saying, Lord, is that true for me? Do I find myself sometimes trying to go back to other things? Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The water that I give him will become like a fountain springing up into everlasting life. This is the promise that he gives. This is the promise of God's spirit in the life of those who've believed him. But I'm afraid that frequently I haven't spent enough time, enough time in the word to learn this to be true. Maybe I just don't believe him when I go looking for other things. You see, if you're looking for your uh, spouse or your children to be your satisfaction for the things that you're really longing for, what you'll do is you'll smother them with a burden that they cannot bear because they weren't made to. And all of those other things, they will become your gods. When we seek to be satisfied, when we seek to quench our thirst with, with entertainment, with show, this is the thing that sometimes frustrates me about Christian ministry, is that it seems like it's just another show for us to attend. The same way that we go to the theater. Rather than a, a community where we serve and love, where we die to ourselves to do good for each other.
And you guys know, you guys know there's a lot more entertaining places you can be this morning. And not just the movie theaters, a lot more entertaining groups of Christians you could meet with, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> a lot of places with a lot more money and a lot more stuff and a lot more people. I knew that. I could too. But it's Jesus that I need. It's not that. And I don't want to be tricked into thinking that because I have an emotional experience at a church building, that that means everything is better than if I don't have that experience. Jesus promised us the water that I shall give him will spring up will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So the woman then, verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. This is a weird response, isn't it? <laughs> uh, she's like, Give me this water. I want, I, Lord, uh, give me this water, Jesus, so that I'm not thirsty anymore. And so he says, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. It was interesting. So Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Whoa. <laughs> See, because it seems like she really was trying to be satisfied with something else. Not just with the water from the well, but with these men too. You've had five husbands. The one whom you now have isn't your husband. <laughs> I want to mention to you that this is an instance where in the life of Jesus we see one of the things that Paul talks about later um, when he talks about the ministry of God's Spirit working in the life of Christians, he tells us that one of the ways that God's Spirit works is that sometimes he gives something called a word of knowledge. The idea here is that sometimes God might gift to someone supernatural knowledge about someone's life or some situation that they could not have known otherwise. This is what we see happening in Jesus' life right now. He receives this word of knowledge, and he's like, you're right. <laughs> See, because what he's wanting to do with this woman is to address what's really what's really happening in her life. The issue that, that she has is one in her heart. It's not about the water at the well. She needs the Lord to rescue her. Her response is appropriate. The woman said to him, Sir, verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Remember I mentioned to you how the Samaritans worshipped where? On Mount Gerizim. That's what she's referring to. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship, right? Because in Jerusalem was where the temple was, right? That's the place where God had prescribed worship to take place, service to him to take place. In that very direct sense. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. For you worship what you do not know. 
<laughs> it's an interesting thing to say. There was a lot of false things happening around the um, religious system that had been established in Samaria. And it was to the Jews that the promise was given. It's to the Jews that the Messiah was sent. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. I think it's funny because Jesus' name, his name Yeshua, is the word salvation. <laughs> salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is of the Jews. <laughs> but salvation itself is also of the Jews. Paul brings this up. I commend to you the entire book of Romans. Read through the book of Romans, <laughs> okay? Because in the book of Romans, Paul establishes very clearly this idea that God had given very particular promises to the nation of Israel. And while many in Israel rejected those promises, some believed there's, there was a remnant. But then, therefore, God then gave those promises to everyone else, right? To the Gentiles as a result of Israel's rejection of those promises, okay? Israel's overall rejection of those promises. And this is that same sort of idea. Salvation is of the Jews, Paul would say in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, um, that uh, the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Gentile. Always has been and always will be. <laughs> Messiah is Jewish Messiah, sent to Israel, still saving Jews today. <laughs> and also those who aren't Jews. Isn't that good news? It's good news for me. <laughs> that I get to be uh, embraced a part of his kingdom. For salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is one of the reasons why Going through the scriptures is such an important part of what it means to follow Jesus. Because if we're to worship him, we're to worship him in spirit, yes, and in truth, knowing what is true about him. And the way that we know what is true is for God to tell us what is true about himself. That is the primary way. And so we must hear the writings of, of the prophets and also of the apostles whom Jesus sent. The distinction here is clear. She was caught up in this idea that it was a place where you ought to worship God, whether for the Samaritans it was the mountain, Mount Gerizim, or whether for the Jews it was in Jerusalem, it was the place that mattered. That's where you worship God. That's what worship looks like. Jesus said, no, 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 the time's coming when, when it, it's not going to be on this mountain, it's not going to be in Jerusalem, but the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth not linked to a particular locale. Anywhere, everywhere, always. <laughs> Everything you do can be an act of worship, can be an act of service. When we drop this division, this dividing line between in your life as a follower of Jesus, between what you think is holy and what you think is secular or unholy or separate, you drop that dividing line and realize that all of your life becomes holy. You are totally, completely dedicated to God so that when I take out the trash, I can do so to the glory of God. When I mow the lawn, I can do so to the glory of God. When, I, um, when I'm cleaning my house, I can do so for God's glory. I can do so honoring Him. I can do so thinking about others. 
I can do, I can do all of the things that, that I've been commanded to do, to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself in doing even the most mundane task. And there I can practice the reality that God is always present. Then I need not have um, hyper-spiritualized, emotionally driven experience. And, and the reason why I'm even bringing that up is that I need you to understand that that kind of thing that sometimes we do in our gatherings and our conferences is the same type of religious experience and hyper-emotionalism that happens outside of Christian circles in every other group. Go to any concert, go to any, any show, any, any rock scene, any, any of that stuff, and you'll find the same type of experience happening. We look at it as Christians and we say, oh, it's the Spirit of God. The world looks at it and just says, man, I had a great time. And I'm just afraid that we're easily manipulated by things that just aren't real. To be frank, I'm changing my name to Frank now. <laughs> uh, I would rather you find, as dry as it may be, what I'm after is for you to have a healthy, grounded relationship with the scriptures and in your marriage, and with your children, and with whatever, whatever people decide to gather with us, that we can be that kind of community that is healthy, that is helpful for each other. And I need your help, because I can't do that myself. Or rather, maybe I should say, I want your help. But I would rather see that than crowds of emotionally manipulated partiers <laughs> on an experiential high driven by... Epinephrine. <laughs> because I think one of the things that's really lacking in the world is healthy, good relationships in marriages, parents and their children. Just think about it. And it's in these relationships, the ones that God has ordained to be the illustrations of his own relationship to his church, it seems like these are the places that we, we lack, that we that we squander, maybe maybe squander is a good word. We just waste. Because we're 
it's like we're after something else and i and i realize that i i need to stop being after the other thing and to say for us lord how can we together how can we serve each other in a way that benefits our families and our marriages and therefore our community by extension through that as we reach out to those relationships in in the lives of others around us first we can have no health apart from the healthy spirit of god working in us through his word correcting disciplining chastening <laughs> god using the sword of his spirit like a scalpel to cut out the the things in our hearts that need to be dealt with the greed the pride the jealousy the anger the contempt for others the unforgiveness the bitterness those things that dishonor god that are a, a slight against his spirit it's easier for me to tell you here's a list of steps to take to be right give this amount of money show up this many times a week do this act of service that's easy but it's not real and it's not what really matters i need to be conformed to the image of jesus more and more and more and god will use my marriage and my family and this family to do that with us but man that's scary cuz cuz it, it means we've got to be open with each other it means we've got to be confessional it means you've got to um share <laughs> and that's really scary so god help us um let's wrap up real quickly here god is spirit verse 24 says god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth there is no other way the woman said to him i know that messiah is coming who is called the christ remember those two words are interchangeable the messiah and the christ when he comes he will tell us all things i love that jesus is so plain jesus said to her he's just so plain right now with this woman jesus said to her i who speak to you am he she's like when the messiah comes he's going to tell us everything and jesus is like listen lady it me right <laughs> it's me i'm i'm the messiah <laughs> And at, at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman yet no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her nobody they're like wait a minute why is he talking to this lady but nobody even asked him to help him or anything the woman then left her water pot went her way into the city verse 28 says and said to the men come see a man who told me all things that i ever did could this be the messiah then they went out of the city and came to him In the meantime his disciples urged him saying rabbi eat teacher eat some food. He but he said to it, to them I have food to eat of which you do not know. What a place to come to in our lives when we realize that there are times when I don't even need to physically eat because I'm doing something that God has called me to do and it satisfies me enough. I don't even feel like I need a meal. One of the warnings against false teachers is the warning that false teachers have their belly as their god. <laughs> They love to consume. 
love to be driven by their inner passions and desires, by their bodies. Free is the person who realizes that they do not have to be a slave even of our own bodies. That is freedom. I didn't say it was easy. I didn't say it was painless. You see, we live in a place now where we say, where we say <clears throat> frequently that there are things that we have to do. Not necessarily. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Do you believe that to be true? The work that you do as you follow Jesus and you are faithful to him in your marriage and with your children, as you are sowing seed, as you are planting those seeds, as you are watering seed that others have planted in the lives of the people that you work with, in the lives of your family members and your friends, as you are doing those things, do, do you not see that there is reward for that? That he sees, that he knows? God is the one who produces life. It is not your responsibility to convert anyone, to make anyone believe. It is your responsibility to be faithful, to plant and to water in the lives of others as you serve them, as you speak the truth to them. God is the one who produces life in us. And it is only God who can do it. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Jesus is saying, there are people who are going to believe me now, but they're believing me because the seed was planted years ago by the words of the prophets or by the words of Moses or by the words of others. They did the planting. Now you guys are doing the reaping of the work that they had already done. As people were going to believe Jesus and be brought into his kingdom. Can you imagine that day there in Acts chapter 2 when 3,000 are saved? Right? And then, and then later on, thousands more are added to the church. We look at that and we say, that's amazing. That's glorious. Yes, but you also need to realize that this is, this is work that God had been doing in the lives of people. Sometimes probably for years. Through John the Baptist. Through, through other prophets. And through the writings of the prophets. And through Moses. And now they're going and they're reaping that, that harvest that, that was planted before them. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. As we read, others have labored and you've entered into their labors. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word and, and then their response. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. By the way, that's always the way it is. You go and you tell somebody the gospel and they may come and hear and say, well, I believe Jesus because of what you said. But eventually they will come to a place, they must come to a place where they say, no, I believe him because I've heard his voice now. I've heard him. I'm not believing just because of what you said. I, I believe because I've heard his voice. That's a person who, who's trusted, who's been born from above, able to hear his voice. And by the way, that's one of the promises in the Jeremiah 31 new covenant promise. that God would write his will in our minds and in our hearts. 
No one would have to say, who's a part of the new covenant, no one would have to say, know the Lord, because you all know the Lord <laughs> if you're in this covenant, in this new covenant. Last little bit. After the, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Stop right there. Do you realize that this is like, this is contraindicated. Jesus says, a prophet has no honor in his own country. But where did he go? Galilee. Where's that? That's where he was raised. <laughs> He's like, I'm going back to the place where I have no honor. <laughs> so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast as the males were required. The men were required to go to Jerusalem uh, for the feast of Passover. And they saw many of the things Jesus did there. So uh, many of them, it says, received him. Um, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea and Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, "Unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe." It's still true. We struggle with believing the work of God in our lives, in the lives of the people around us, in our communities, our cities, our church, don't we? Unless we see signs and wonders, right? Is God really at work there? Well, I don't know. Are signs and wonders happening? Has some miracle occurred to prove that God's really at work there? Is that really the proof? Is that really what we're after? Jesus seemed to lament the fact that he had to prove himself by doing some miracle to get somebody to believe him. Later on, we find him saying, only the sign of prophet Jonah is the only sign I'm going to give you. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the, the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. That's it. He's buried and raised from the dead. This guy's response, I think, is heartwarming and wonderful. Jesus, it seems, is using this as an illustration, as an opportunity to teach the people around him. It's not that he's unconcerned with this man or his need, his situation. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that he's addressing the bigger picture, the broader reality, that we are frequently looking for some sign to justify whether or not we're in the right direction. Why do we do it? It's natural, right? We judge it thusly. If I make a decision about something, if I've prayed about it and make a choice about it, if I've sought counsel from others, or even if not, if I make a decision about some particular thing, if it is school-related or work-related or family-related, if it's buying a certain house or buying a particular car, if I make a decision about that and I have come to a place where I've said, I have peace about it in my heart, right? Because many of us were taught growing up that the way to know God's will is to wait about something until you don't feel afraid about it anymore. And we call that having peace in your heart. Uh, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be afraid or not be afraid? How much anxiety? What level of anxiety qualifies as having peace or not having peace related to something? Who defines that? What does that even mean? Why are we setting these boundaries? Who made this up? We, we all made it up. Because <laughs> we're all trying to grab at reality. <laughs> 
Everyone, everyone, with the collective wisdom of humanity, we've tried to make up all of these boundaries, all of these rules. But we're all just making it up, guys. All of us. (laughs) And so we say... The situation is thus. We say, well, I prayed about this thing, about buying this car, and I bought this car, and so I know this is God's will for me. And then and then two years later, I talked to the same person. This has happened to me numerous occasions. The car broke down a week later. They couldn't afford anything. They lost their job because they couldn't get to work. And now their life is in shambles. They're Sometimes they're, somebody in their family has left because they couldn't provide for them anymore. They lost their house or some other thing. And they say, well... I say, well, was it God's will then (laughs) or not? Oh, and here's our immediate response. Well, clearly then it wasn't God's will, right? It was the wrong choice to make because now look at all the bad things that have happened. Well, says who? How do we know? Maybe the person needed to be humbled. Maybe that's what God was after. Stripping them of everything. Do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar? who said, I, with my great hand, have have done all these things. And God said, no, 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 Nebi. Nah, brah. I'm going to make you go crazy for a little while, for about seven years, and you're going to eat grass, and you're going to grow hair, and your fingernails are going to grow long, and you're going to go around like you're an animal. I want you to remember that God reigns in the kingdom of men. God reigns. He is in charge. I want you to be cautious about the way that you judge what is good or bad, the way that you look at things and say, well, this is a sign of something God wanted me to do or a sign of something that I shouldn't have done. Be cautious about that because it doesn't always mean the things that you think it means. Unless you see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. I love that. Everybody in the house was like, oh my. (laughs) The same hour that Jesus said, your son lives, that's when he got better? I don't want to diminish the glory of this miracle. But I want to remind you of this, because we live in this world that is a mess. The last verse says, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judah, Judea into Galilee. The first was the water into wine story that um, John already told us about in chapter 2. Um, but how many times does Jesus have to raise the kid from the dead for us to say, this is great, this is wonderful, um, how many times did Jesus have to heal the person for us to say, well, this is, this is good? What about the times like when he doesn't? What about the promise of eternal life, of resurrection, of, of perfect healing? We look at these signs where somebody is you know, healed from some terrible ordeal, 
and that's wonderful when it happens, but you've got to remember that it's all temporary. How many times does it have to happen for us to be satisfied? I know that we don't want our bodies to die, but I got to get you to understand that you don't get to choose that. <laughs> what you can choose is what, what you decide to do with that body of yours right now, today, in this moment. That's what you get to choose. And if God has given you his spirit, you have great liberty to choose, even to fight against the drive of your body that drives away from the things of God. God has given us victory over our flesh, over our body, so that they do not have to dictate to us what we do. Rather, we have the ability by God's spirit to fight against them, to fight against the world and the flesh and the devil, to fight against all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I've taken a lot of your time, and I appreciate your patience with me. I feel like an old crazy man sometimes, but whatever. I don't, I don't care anymore, I guess. Father, thank you for your love. <laughs> Would you bless these, your people? Would you shower us with your love in a way that we can't even imagine? And not in some emotional, hyped-up experience, but so that we are confident of your work in our lives right in this moment, right now, aware that you are with us, committed to us, doing the things that are right and good for the sake of your kingdom and what you want to do right now in the places where we are. You have given us your spirit. That is the gift. That is the promise that you've given us. You are present with us, Lord. We are yours just as you are ours. God, please be honored with us. Work out your your will, your kingdom through us in the lives of the people around us, I pray. Do it for the sake of Jesus. Do it for your own namesake, Father. Work in our marriages and with our children and in our families and in, in this little this little group, this little community here, Lord. Please knit us together and build us, Lord, that we would be healthy and helpful uh, for whatever time, whatever time remains. Please, I pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Do it well. Uh, I appreciate you guys. I want the Lord to bless you and keep you. I want the Lord to make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. And I want the Lord to lift up his smile on you and give you peace. You guys, you're dismissed. It's super late. I love you anyways. (laughs) 